Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Kinsey here with todiefordaily.com, and thank you so much for checking out the To Die For Daily podcast. Here's author Andrew Morton. So are you, have you seen the musical? Do you like it? Yeah, it was good. I, I hate musicals, but I thought this was really good. Oh, wow. Then I the guy who plays me, is, he is shorter. Is a guy called Nathan Lucrecio. He is shorter than me, balding, <laughs> but he's a brilliant singer and dancer. And he played Aladdin on Broadway. Oh, wow. Now, see, that only kind of offends me because I heard that you began your career as a Royals correspondent because you were right. so tall that you could see over all of the crowds. That's right. So, I mean, they, the casting, that's a little iffy if, you know, we're going for authentic here. Well, yeah. I mean, like I always make the joke when this when they're casting me for, um, you know, for, for the fifth episode of The Crown, which they'll be doing the, the, the book. And uh, they say, who, who would you like to play you? And I said, well, I'm six foot four. So how about Danny DeVito? God, no. That would be a great debate, though. Who could play you in the crown? I love that. I'm going to have to, I'm at least going oh, to. Well, Colin Firth is, is, would be a good one. Absolutely. He's, he's now too old to play me. I mean, and I'm too old to play me in the crown. Yeah, you've got to have somebody, you know. Um, Basically, this is, a, this is what you need. All you need is this. Somebody wearing glasses. Right. But he's got to be, you know, um, I also I also saw someone say, and I don't know if this is true or not. And I wanted I didn't know if it was OK to ask you about this, but I saw somebody say in a documentary that Diana was a little bit flirtatious with you, that she thought you were cute and like she would like fix your tie or something and you'd blush. Is that true or is that just jealousy from other journalists talking? Well, there was I would say there was kind of. I mean, looking back, I suppose it was a little bit of mild flirtation. I mean, when you fix a guy's tie, it's always a little bit of a moment. Just almost like Margaret and Peter Townsend when she just like yeah, brushed the lint off. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, I, as I've said a million times, I never met her during the, the process of writing the book, which is the extraordinary thing. The days when there used to be press conferences and press cocktail parties um she was she used to be quite fun she was fun oh I I mean, that's what that i have to say is what people always forget about diana she was a lot of fun she, yes. had, a, she had a great sense of humor she always saw the funny side of things she you know she she was never miserable for so for too long well, I was going to save this question till the end, but do you miss Diana? I mean, this is the perfect opportunity to ask you, do you miss her? Yeah, I mean, I do. And and not for any specific personal reasons, but I really do feel that towards the end of her life, not that she knew it was the end of her life, she was really seeing light at the end of the tunnel. She was She'd found herself a charity, the Red Cross that that was international, that took on difficult issues that she would like to do. She she was she'd enjoyed a summer fling with Dodie Fayed, but she was on the way up, and that was the thing. And and what was brilliant were those pictures of her taken by Mario Testino. They 
forever encapsulate her, just like the last photo session of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Kind of captured something quite spiritual in her. And Diana looked, she looked great. I mean, and she did respond to, to pictures and you can map her life through pictures. And that, those, that last photo session was quite extraordinary. Absolutely. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm so excited about this book, um, Elizabeth and Margaret. It is, I hope, I, I, I said to Matthew, I hope the queen gets this book in her hands because it is, such, <laughs> and then she, but it really, it's such a sweet story of Elizabeth and Margaret and you are, it's, it's so enchanting. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever, um, I don't know if I've ever seen it written. First of all, you were so kind to Margaret. It's the most likable I've ever read, Margaret. Um, but I'm wondering, is there ever a clear expectation of the spare? And if not, does it make sense to figure that out for them psychologically? Because it felt like she was lost. That's such a good question, such a good question. I mean, as Margaret said herself, she was number two in line behind the queen. For goodness sake, the previous two monarchs were number twos in line and George V and obviously George VI. Um, they were living in wartime when neighbors, friends, colleagues were dying in doodle bug attacks, in bomb attacks, where the king and queen often felt that they you know, they were reaching the end of the road and they could be dead at any minute. So it was absurd, in a way, not to educate Margaret in the, in the ins and outs of statecraft. So, and so they didn't do that. They did the traditional thing, which was pour all the energy into the air presumptive, into Elizabeth, and left Margaret to get on with it. And it's tough. I've come to realise over the last, just the last few months, watching Meghan, watching Kate, just how tough it is. I mean, let's just look at Catherine for a minute. She struggled, I think, in the early days because it's the, that intense focus on what you're wearing, what you're saying, what you're doing was probably overwhelming. She will never, she would probably never admit this, but she looks to me like a woman who is very much in command of herself, of her position, of her side of the marriage. And, it, and but it's taken her a long time. Look what happened to Meghan Markle. You know, let's just forget all the controversy about mental health and so on. She just couldn't hack it. That's the, the top and bottom. And she didn't, anticipate that it was difficult. It was like trying to climb Everest without ropes and without boots. And it was like trying to climb Everest in flip-flops. I'm going to rem remember that one. <laughs> Make sure they're expensive flip-flops. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're quite right. Princess Anne was brought up as royal first the first princess to go to a, a, a school outside the palace and she was a she was a tough cookie and is a tough cookie but she only found you know, she found her, her role through save the children mm. and, and i think you're absolutely right 
there was no preparation or, or training for any of them, to be honest with you. And that's the, that's the conclusion I've come to with watching the, the Meghan Markle interview, that she had no training, Diana had no training. And the reason why that none of them had any training, because there is no training. Right. You can't train to be a princess. It's just got to evolve naturally. And I think this is what people have, you know, everybody expects some kind of queen mother figure to say, right, let's, like in the crown, right, we better teach you how to curtsy and do this, that and the other. And of course, there's some, there's some general guidance, but to be a princess is a lifetime of education. Yeah. So, so it's a very long-winded answer to your question because it's a brilliant question and it goes to the heart of this book, really, that, that the Queen had her path uh, marked out for her. Margaret didn't, and she struggled. She struggled a lot. But her work for the National Children, NSPCC, um, and the Royal Ballet was, was obviously was second string compared to what the Queen was doing. So she's all, she was always number two. She's always second and then further down the, the pecking order. Right. And that's uh, that had to especially be hard when they grew up in tandem. They grew up wearing the same clothes, having the same... And the downs. She's wearing... Margaret's wearing Elizabeth's old frocks and shirts. And, and you're absolutely right. They were almost treated like identical twins. If I mean, even though there's a, quite a considerable age difference, four years. Um, and it, and as their childhood friend, uh, Alethea Fitzalan Howard said, you know, they were making Elizabeth seem younger yeah. than, than, than Margaret. One of the, the, the reasons for doing the book in the first place was that there's, the, there's been queens with sisters, but the sisters, are, sisters have been very remote. This is a unique period of history where the queen and her sister was together for so long um, and grew up literally side by side. And even more so with the war, they were, you know, co constant companions and they had almost like a telepathic understanding of one another. I love that. Um, another fun uh, part of your book that I never had ever heard before is that Ch Churchill's reaction to Peter Townsend and Margaret's love affair it's the first time I've heard him described as romantic, which made me just, I just thought that was so perfect. Um, why are we, because I also read another book that said Churchill was not a hundred percent against Wallace. Why has history almost been repainted to where Churchill was this big bully figure that, you know, got in between people's love affairs when, you know, realistically history says that he is the softy. He, he was this guy that didn't really necessarily see a problem with it. Well, he wasn't. I mean, let's just deal with Wallace for a start off. He didn't, he didn't object to Wallace. What he objected to was the fact that um, Edward VIII was just throwing away all his cards in the game of poker with Baldwin. And so, as a pragmatic man, he and Beaverbrook and the rest of um, uh, Edward's supporters felt that he should just remain king, go through with the coronation, introduce Wallace gradually, a bit like, oh, guess who? 
uh, Camilla Parker Bowles and Prince Charles. I mean, she's been gradually, gradually inducted into the royal world. So now there's a generation of people who think, what? And she she fought with Diana. I wonder why. You know. So there's a so so the, so time is on your side. Yeah. And so Churchill, as a politician, as a strategist, he said, get the crown on your head and who it will be a very brave prime minister who tells you you can't marry the woman you love. And quite frankly, Edward was bone stupid (laughs) for the simple reason that he had to wait six months anyway before he could see Wallace if he abdicated the throne and he did so and he didn't he didn't see her until just before the coronation if you remember he bounded up the stairs at uh, Chateau Condé so Churchill the romantic well Churchill the strategist Churchill the monarchist really and then secondly then then it comes to Townsend well that's an interesting one his first instincts were Oh, what a wonderful story, a beautiful princess marrying a man home from the war. And his wife said, we're not going down that abdication road again. Once again, divorce was the thing that collared them. And what, and this is one of the remarkable things about the reign. The Queen's reign has seen divorce go from being absolutely anathema to uh, a, a divorced uh, biracial American marrying in St George's Chapel. I mean, Wallace Simpson will be spinning in a would have would have been spinning in her grave on the nineteenth of May two thousand and eighteen. Well, because- another, yeah, another thing you just said though is patience, you know, and that's something that I think is Meghan Markle and Harry lacked because I think oh, if they would uh, have the, had the, patience, everything would have been so different. They were too busy starting a, starting a fight in an empty room. Those two. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe. Like I said, you know, if you're trying to climb social Everest, which is what joining the the uh, well, I'm going to this. I'm going to use this one endlessly now. You've given me a good <laughs> good morning thought. Um, you, you come prepared. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to go for if you're going to go for a scene in suits, you you'll remember your lines. That's the there's a clue in all this, and it's called being professional not being the patron saint of victimhood. Right. Um, well, uh, I, you know, in, in your book, I felt a lot of things in your book were co- completely contradictory to um, the Oprah interview. For instance, I'd read that she cried while watching Diana's funeral. I read that she admired Diana's charity work. And then it felt like she was saying during the interview, I just fell in love with this beautiful ginger. Like, I just, I don't know. And I, I just thought, you know, uh, I, yeah. I, 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 I lost a lot of, res- I mean, I, I found the, 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 um, talking about mental health, very, very, quite moving and very brave of her to do that. But then I had to ask myself, you know, she has a husband who's the patron of a mental health charity. Um, his godmother is a psychotherapist. Right. That interview left me baffled. It was a brave confessional, but it, it, but it, it was also baffling make-believe. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, the objective is clearly compelling, disturbing, flawed. Right. 
but the, it seems like the objective was PR in America, which they got, and now they've got all of these new opportunities. So that's what they want. They're they're done, I think, over there. Oh, they're certainly done in Britain. I mean, I think they'll, they'd get booed if they uh, came, came to Britain. Oh, my goodness. So we're talking about Churchill. Um, so when it came to Townsend, yeah, he, his, his initial instincts were, were both romantic, but they... He was quite pragmatic about divorce as well because his son Randolph was divorced. Half the cabinet were divorced. Eden was divorced. Three other members of the cabinet were divorced. So it didn't have even the space of you know, 20 years. It didn't have the stigma that it had in the 1930s. And yet, you know, the, 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 the media and the church got themselves into a sense of high dudgeon over it. You know that this that she wanted to marry this man, who was what twelve years her senior and and a divorcee. Um, I do think like he would have been great for her though, and I could I could be wrong. I know that you didn't. I know that she decided not to do it because of, for spiritual reasons. But looking at kind of the chaos, I'm like, wow, could she have settled down with him? Would she have been the dutiful sister? had she settled down with Peter? Well, as I write in the book, what is interesting is that, first of all, the Queen was prepared to have the monarchy stained and attacked for the sake of Margaret's happiness, because there were no penalties. The penalties that Tommy Lascelles had laid out, you give up your civil list, you've got to live in exile, you won't be able to marry for some years, you won't be able to come back to Britain for a while, you've got to give up your title, and you've got to give up your position in the line of succession. Eden said, no, forget all that. You just have to give up your, your, your position in the line of succession and marry in a civil uh, ceremony. Well, a civil ceremony, which you would have had to do anyway, because even now the church is, is hesitant about allowing divorcees to marry in church. So there was that, and that's what, um, you know, that, that was the, the thing, that Margaret didn't ever tell Townsend about this get-out-of-jail-free card that they had. Eden came to Balmoral bearing all kinds of gifts, saying, you don't have to give up your position, you don't have to give up your civil list, you don't have to um, live abroad, you can continue with royal engagements if people want you. Uh, your husband, Captain Peter Townsend, he might even get some money from the civil list and he might get himself a title. So, you know, what did she have to give up? Well, place in the line of succession. Well, she was already number four by, by that time. So, so what? And that's what, uh, so what is intriguing is that she obviously wasn't, being completely honest with Peter Townsend. So maybe the period that they had to wait until she was 25, because that, that's when she didn't need the Queen's permission to marry, that was um, a time when she, you know, maybe she thought she didn't really want to be with him for forever. And, and you know, it's very interesting, you know, that there's, there's that whole story that um, Eddie Fisher's daughter tells about Eddie Fisher, the singer, having an affair with Margaret in the, around the same time that she's yeah. still you know, wooing Townsend from afar. Who knows? I mean, she, she was a lady of, uh, of appetites, shall we say. 
Uh, you paint such an enchanting picture of Elizabeth and Margaret's, their childhood. Us four, which I loved. Why, we four, yeah, we four. Why is the Windsor Mountbatten household so polar opposite? So Prince Philip is, in a way, is, is, is a ro- robust character who was basically, he brought himself up. I mean, his father cleared off, his father, Prince Andrew, went to the south of France with his mistress. His mother, Princess Andrew, was in a was in a, a, a home for several years. He was farmed out to various relatives. And he had to, you know, he had to make make it make it or break it. So yeah, so so in a way, the the House of Windsor, Mountbatten, it is a it's it's back to what I was saying before. It's a tough school. It's a very and Charles found it difficult to hack it, and not so much. She had a natural talent on horseback, and she could do, you know, she was good like that. But in a way, the Queen had her mother, motherhood, as it were, torn away from her. She was happy being a Navy wife in Malta, and she was happy, you know, in enjoying that life of being out of the public eye and she ex- and she and prince philip expected that they would not be in it won't be, wouldn't be until their 50s when they became king and and uh, queen and consort and you know philip had his his um career laid out on that assumption and he you know and people in the Navy have said he could have been first Lord or fourth Lord or whatever of the Admiralty. And he certainly was on a fast track to do well. And I think it's something of a, of a, of a mistake to say that the queen was this chilly distant mother, because when you actually look at the evidence, she tried her best. I mean, she, she was a mother of her times where, you know, she left the kids with the nannies while she went off to Malta. She didn't spend all day, you know, chucking them under the chin. But she did uh, spend time with them and want to spend time with them. And and I think that you know you you quite rightly point out that George VI or the Duke the Duke and Duchess of York, as they were, were very affectionate, hands-on parents, and that the Queen, by contrast, was quite hands off but that in, in in part was was lenience on her on her part um and it's interesting that at times of crisis the queen has always been to help the children so when margaret was divorcing she put her arms around sarah and you know took her to jim carners and, and took her on holidays and so the same with david lindley and then also, of course, with that terrible week in, in Scotland when Diana died, she, her first thoughts were, were for William and Harry. And you can see that as a grandmother, but also a queen, so there's a certain distance there, she has you know, spent a long time with, with William and Harry. And also, just to go back to the 50s and 60s, she specifically wanted to start a second family to enjoy the children more. So it's not... Everything is not quite black and white. That's yeah. the point I'm making. And that one has to revise one's opinion when you just look at the facts. I love it. Well, I don't want to take up, um, I didn't want to take up 
any more of your time. I will tell you one of my favorite lines in the book is disobedience is my joy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I loved how you said the royal family are not supposed to be human. You've kind of touched on that too. Um, but I'm just, I am such a huge fan. I feel like I've waited all my life to talk to you. So I'm so grateful for your time today. And I love the book and I hope I get to talk to you again. Okay, Hindi. Lovely to talk to you. Take care. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. A transcript of this chat is available at todiefordaily.com. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.